Well, good morning, church. Y'all ready for 1045? Good, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it is a real honor this morning to open up God's word and to be able to wrestle with what he wants to share with us this morning, that we might be transformed and the people that he wants us to be. I'll be honest with you, I got like four hours of content to squeeze into like 30 minutes this morning. So we're gonna fly. So if you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up already to Acts chapter one if you want to. If you got your phones with you, you can go there as well. But we are starting a new series today called On the Move. And for the next 10 weeks, we're gonna be looking at the book of Acts from really beginning to end and asking the question, like, what does a move of God look like? You know, how does it start? What, how, does it, how does it move forward? Who does it impact? And, and our goal would be, hopefully, during that time, as we walk through the book of Acts, we might be able to glean things for us as a church to say, if God is on the move, we still, we still wanna be on the move with him. Here's the big question I wanna pose this morning. I mean, do you long to see God move in our midst? Like, are you okay to just kind of exist through life and float through life, or do you wanna see God do amazing things in you and amazing things through you? As a church, I, I hope and pray that our response would be, we want to see God do something in a powerful, powerful way. So we're on the move. When I was a kid, um, my family, we had the season that we went through where I had a hamster. Anybody else in the room, you had, your family had like hamsters? They're like, oh, geez, don't take me back there again, right? Maybe you're there right now. How fun. So when I was a kid, we had hamsters. I feel like it's a rite of passage for families. Like you have to have the guppy that jumps out of the bowl, you know, and lays on the carpet for a while. And then you, then you get the hamster and then you move on from there. So we were in the hamster stage and I had this hamster named Gus Gus. And um, cute, right? So uh, made it up myself. So Gus Gus lived in this little plastic container. He had tubes that he would run through and the whole nine yards. And he would take seeds and pack his cheeks full. And he was a really cute little thing. And we played with him all the time. But there was something that he would do that I always felt really, really bad about. And maybe your hamsters did the same thing. But he had this wheel in his cage. Anybody else had a hamster wheel? And he would get on that thing. And I'm talking like hamster marathon, just like go for it for like hours a day, just running, running, running. His little hamster feet be going, like hamster sweat building up. I mean, he was like working every single day. And I would feel bad because as he was running, every time he was finished, he would get back off the wheel and he would be right in the same spot he started. You gotta think he's frustrated by that, right? Like all of this work, all of this movement, all this effort, and I'm right here back where I started at the very beginning. You know, I would argue during this series, one of the things that we really wanna to speak to is that God is on the move. He's been on the move for a long time. He's not finished yet, and he's inviting us into the same kind of process to move with him, to experience what he's doing and join him in his work. But I would argue that the, the modern-day church, for the most part, ends up looking like a hamster on a wheel. Like there's a lot of movement, a lot of stuff, a lot of programs, a lot of things, but, it, but in the end, we don't really get anywhere. We have all this stuff happening, but in the end, my question is like, what does it really result in? And I would argue that you and I are a microcosm of that bigger picture, that for the most part, many of us in the room, we have the same experience. We're really, really busy, we do lots of stuff, but in the end, we're people on a hamster wheel, we're in the rat race, and we're doing it every single day, and my question is, is it resulting in anything? I would argue when you read through the book of Acts, you see a God who is on the move, who invites other people in as well, and it's not just movement and program and everything else, but instead, it's resulting in a powerful, powerful move of God. That's what I long to see happen within my life, within our lives, and the church, global. So this morning, we're gonna look at this book of Acts, and to really understand the book of Acts, we first have to understand that the book of Acts is really a two-part work. Uh, it's a two-part work between Luke and Acts. So who wrote the book of Luke? Anyone know? 
Luke, good job. All right, so you can impress people at lunch with that one at most afterwards. But Luke wrote both of these books. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. Oftentimes, they're called Luke-Acts. They're a two-part volume that, that Luke penned. And the reason he did this, we really get a feel for it in the very first verse of the first chapter of Acts. He specifies that there's a different focus for each of these books. The first focus, he tells us in chapter one, is to look at the things that Jesus began to do and teach. So the Gospel of Luke is looking at what Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus was on the move. He was at work, and that book is focused on what he began to do, the things he began to teach his people. Now, Acts, he suggests, is the next piece of that, to continue to look at what Jesus is continually doing, now through his followers and now through the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is all about these apostles, these followers of Jesus, that when he dies, resurrects from the dead, spends time with his followers, goes to heaven, now they take the mantle of this gospel and they take it on the move next. So you read about people like Paul and Peter and Timothy and Stephen and Lydia and others throughout the book of Acts. We'll see a lot of different names as we go through, but really there's only one consistent name from beginning to end and it's Jesus. So traditionally, this book has been known as the Acts of the Apostles. So you have the life of Jesus, what he began to teach and do. Then you have the Acts of the Apostles, but maybe it's better named the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. You see, the movement began with Jesus, but it didn't stop there. It continued on. And the reason we're looking at this in the first place is because we're invited into the continual movement that God is still doing today. And we might be able to find something from the book of Acts that we can apply to our lives because here's the thing, Jesus finishes what he starts. Jesus finishes what he starts. And aren't you glad? We're all a work in progress, aren't we? There's all, all of us in this room are at a different place maybe in our relationship to God. Maybe we haven't even begun there yet. But Jesus finishes what he starts. We find it in the scripture and we find it in our life as well. He's not done yet and there's work to be done. So the reason you are sitting here this morning to be very, very clear is because there was this grassroots movement around 2,000 years ago, with this ragtag group of Jesus followers that began to blow up into this movement that we are a part of today. It has weathered kings and wars and revolutions and persecution and much, much more. And this morning you are here because this movement is still alive today and we're invited in. Here's what it says in Acts chapter one, verse one through four. Here's what Luke writes. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this instruction or this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father that he promised, which you have heard me speak about. So first, Luke begins his letter by writing to a particular person, potentially named Theophilus. In fact, it says, he says the excellent Theophilus. Now, the reason he writes to Theophilus, there's a lot of debate over who this is exactly. There's really two options. Theophilus means loved by God or friend of God. So potentially, it's kind of a catch-all name for all the followers of Jesus in this letter that, that Luke is writing. So he's, he's speaking to all that are loved by God or who are friends of God. But some believe he's actually writing to a specific person. And maybe that person was a Roman officer. 
And that's one of the reasons maybe why he calls him the excellent Theophilus. This is the way that you would uh, speak to someone who had a rank of that type. But either way, whether it was a group of people or Theophilus was a singular person, Luke is intentionally writing this letter to convince his reader or his readers that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be and that he started a movement that they are invited into through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So at the end of Luke, you have Jesus crucified, buried, he rises from the dead, and then in Acts, you begin to see what happens next. He meets with his apostles. He shares with them the good news about Christ. And then he says to them this really important command. This is what I really wanna focus on today. After 40 days with his apostles, he says to them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift that will come from the Father that I've been telling you about. Wait. So a couple things. First, this word wait is not a passive kind of conversation. It's not like just sit on your chair and wait for God to do something. This, this word wait is different than that. This word wait means to stand firm in the face of difficulty. So apostles, all that you're gonna go through in the world, wait for the spirit of God, this gift that is coming to you from the Father. You're gonna need it. And I would argue he would say the same thing to us, that when we face the difficulties of the world that we will all surely face, we must wait on this gift that is coming from the Father that is given to us. But secondly, he says, wait for what? The gift. Wait for the gift. This is an important piece because oftentimes in the church, when we have conversations about things like the Spirit of God or movement of God, oftentimes we feel like it's something that we have to earn. Like if we are good enough, then maybe God will invite us in. Like if we're good enough, maybe we'll experience his presence. Maybe if we're good enough, he'll do something in us and then do something through us. That is not the way Luke writes about this. He says it is what? A gift. And if you're given a gift, there's only one way you can, you can take that gift. You receive it. You don't earn it. That's not a gift. That's called a wage. That's something you've earned. But a gift is something that is given out of love and grace. And so this spirit that Luke is speaking about here in verses one through four, it's a gift that has come from God. It's a spirit. Now, to be specific, this literal word for spirit can be translated also as sacred wind, Holy Spirit, sacred wind, holy breath. Now, in the church today, we understand this thing that is being talked about, this person that's being talked about as the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, you have Father, you have Son, and you have Holy Spirit. But Jesus is introducing these apostles to this person, this person of the Holy Spirit who works in tandem with Father and with Son. We read about him in these few verses, but we find out that his arrival, this gift that we receive, is incredibly important for the movement that God has invited us into. If you read a few verses later then, in chapter one, verse eight, it says this, but you will receive power, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. This is why Luke, quoting Jesus, says, wait, wait for the gift of the Spirit because the gift of the Spirit brings power. There's a couple of things we see here. When it comes to God's movement, God's movement always begins somewhere, but then it moves out from there. So he says something specific. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit because you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. 
Now, to us, that may not make a lot of sense, but at that time, they were in Jerusalem. That was really close. And then Judea was a little further out, and Samaria, even a little further out with people they didn't really like very much, and then beyond that, to the very ends of the earth. What, what is being said here is, when you receive this power, it's not meant for you to be hoarded to yourself in your location. It's meant to be something that's on the move from this place further and further and further. Like today, this church is serving in this location. But at the same time, we have folks from our church family who are in Nigeria right now who are serving around the world. We have many that I can mention who have come from our youth program and are serving in Charleston, who are serving in South Africa, who are serving in uh, the uh, Southeast Asia and all these places. You see, the work of God always begins somewhere, but it always moves out from there. This is one of the reasons why you must wait for the gift because it'll give you power to be a part of this move of God from here to everywhere. And the reason we're given the power, the Bible says, is because these apostles were gonna become witnesses. Now, the Greek word for witness is the word martus. Isn't that a fun word? Martus. It's where we get the word martyr. So for someone to be a witness, it didn't just mean they were gonna talk about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They're going to demonstrate his life, death, and resurrection. In fact, all throughout the book of Acts, we read about individuals who lost their life because of this movement. In just a few chapters, we'll see the first martyr, the first witness who will bleed and die for the person of Jesus. As you continue throughout the book and the rest of the New Testament, you will find others who were persecuted and went through horrible things as witnesses to Jesus. They didn't turn back because they had the power that they had waited on, the gift of the Father that allowed them to stay stand firm in the face of whatever they were going through. To even talk about this this morning just feels funny in this room. Because for most of us as Christians here in this room, the hardest thing we do on a Sunday is to figure out what we're gonna wear today. And we sit here in our nice padded seats and we sip our coffee. We sit in nice pews in the other room. You know, we, we do all of these things on a Sunday morning and sometimes we're grumpy about it. That we gotta drive to church at 10.45 in the morning. Like these are the kind of attitudes that we have. When, do you realize right now around the world there are more martyrs, people who are witnesses, who are dying for their faith, today than ever before in history. Typically, it's something we read about or we kind of talk about as a past thing. That is not true. There are people in other places around the world who are suffering for their faith because they believe Jesus is who he says so much that they would give their life for it. Places like Liberia, the Middle East, and India, and everywhere in between, there are Christians who believe so strongly in what Jesus has done and they have received this gift that comes from the Father to help them have strength to stand firm and to be witnesses for him. And I say this this morning because perhaps one of the first things we need to say is if we're gonna be on a movement with God, we have to understand movement costs us something. Like if you're gonna be a part of the movement of God, it's not easy. It should cost you something. Like, there may be difficult situations you get put, on, put in because you love Jesus. There may be some friendships that are strained because you believe in Jesus. There might be some, some resources that you offer to others to make a difference in the world because you believe in Jesus. It should cost you something. Not just padded seats and coffee on Sunday morning. It's difficult. In fact, the, the early church father, Tertullian, said it this way. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, when people bleed for Jesus, that's where the church grows. If you look throughout church history, whenever persecution would break out, that is when the church explodes. 
And perhaps one of the problems we have in the West is it's way, way, way too easy. We don't really have to cost anything to be a part of this movement. We just show up and then we leave. But what if we had some skin in the game to receive this gift from the Father, this gift that is power? This word power is an important word too. It's the word dunamis in the Greek. This word power is where we get our word dynamite or dynamic. This power is explosive. It's full of potential. You see, if you're gonna have a movement of God, first you have to have embers. A movement of God needs embers. Now follow me on this. I find it interesting that that Luke uses this kind of language as he speaks to the apostles and he writes this down. It's because it's interesting because he seems to believe there has to be some sort of catalyst for the movement of God to begin. Some kind of spark, some kind of flame, some kind of ember that could grow and really pick up steam. If you've ever been backpacking before or camping before and you've ever tried to start a fire, you know you need tinder, you need some like shavings, like salt, uh, sock lint, I promise you, is like a great way to start too, but you have to have a spark. There's gotta be something that gets it going. And for a lot of us in the room, there's been a time where we experienced God in such a powerful way that it was a spark within our life that started a movement that was fanned into flame. There has to be some kind of ember for a movement to begin and for a movement to go. So this book of Luke, this is the first volume, and it talks about all that Jesus did, this powerful, dunamis, powerful work of Jesus casting out demons, feeding the hungry, befriending the poor, defeating the works of the devil, like really, really powerful things that Jesus was doing. That's the first volume. And the second volume, Luke seems to suggest, you're gonna be doing the same kinds of things. You as apostles, you need this power and this dunamis in your life because you too, you'll be casting out demons, you'll be feeding the poor, befriending those who are in need, feeding the hungry, going to far off places and making a difference. You have to have the power of God to accomplish this. You cannot do it on your own. You need the sacred, holy breath, wind, spirit to do it. To talk about spirit's kind of hard in the church. Because to talk about the spirit of God, this third part of the Trinity, this powerful thing that takes up residence within our life, it's a hard thing to explain because it's a hard thing to see. And oftentimes, as as Americans, we have a hard time believing anything we can't see. And so the spirit's difficult. It's like talking about the wind. Like outside to say, hey, do you see the wind? Like where it's coming from and where it's going? It's a hard thing. But you can see the effects of the wind. You can see the wind at work. And so as you read throughout the New Testament, This word for Holy Spirit is the word pneuma. And this is the same word that's used for wind. It's the same word that's used for breath. This breath or wind or spirit of God. It's hard to talk about, but it's crucial to the story. It's crucial to the movement of God. When I was young, my grandparents lived in Minnesota, but they had a a little cabin in Wisconsin about two hours away from them. And so in the summer times, my family would often go up to Wisconsin to spend time at the cabin with my grandparents. And my grandfather was a sailor. I'll show you a picture um, right here. He had this little sailboat that he kept at the cabin up there. And that's me, the captain up in the front. You see me? So uh, in this little sailboat, we would oftentimes spend time, hours out on the lake sailing together. It was a very small lake. And so the wind on the lake was actually pretty unpredictable. So we would get going and we'd get out into the lake and occasionally the wind would die and we would just be kind of sitting out there in the boat together like, well, maybe we'll make it back, I don't know. And my grandfather taught me all kinds of really important things about sailing, like how, how to rig your sails and how to secure the sheets and how to do all these things, how to navigate. But one of the most important things he showed me was how to be able to read the wind on the water. 
So he would say to me like things like, hey, listen, we're dead in the water right now, but if you can see right over there, see the ripples on the water, that's the wind moving and it's coming this direction. So if we wait, we wait and we wait, when this wind shows up, we can, we can harness that and we can go again. And sailing is incredible. If you've never sailed before, like there's no sound except for the ripple of the water. There's no engine that's fired up or anything. Like, you're, just, you're just being pulled mysteriously through the water by this incredible power from the wind. Now, if you, if you go in a boat and you have an engine, okay, you can control where you go with an engine, right? I'll go here and then I'll go here. You're the one in control of where that boat goes and when it goes. But when it comes to the wind, you're not in control. The wind is something you have to look for, be sensitive to. And if you're prepared for it, you can harness that wind and it will take you where it wants to go. The same is true for the Spirit of God. You see, I'm afraid that for, for many of us in the room this morning who've been a part of the church for a long time, I would argue that one of the reasons that we miss out on the movement of God is because too often we're trying to work on our own power. Like, I can do this. I can be cool enough. I can be funny enough. When I first began to work here at the church doing middle school ministry, I will tell you my ministry principle, my main principle, my main ministry tactic was I will be as cool as I can and just see how many middle school kids I can get to show up. As you can tell, that was limited. So if you came... But there was this moment in time where I began to realize, like, this thing doesn't go past me if it's just me. Like, if this movement is only based upon my ability to be funny or cool or engaging, it doesn't go past me. I had to realize there was this spirit that was available to me, this filling with power that was available to me that could do things far past what I can do. So this morning, if you're gonna be on the move with God, I believe it's important for us to look at Acts chapter one and recognize what Luke says, what Jesus said. Wait for the Holy Spirit, not passively, but be on the lookout for where God is at work. And when you see him at work, join him. Harness that power. Let it fill you to be a part of what God is doing. You see, the Spirit is so important. It's such a, a crucial piece throughout the whole Bible. But in the New Testament in particular, we learn some things about the Spirit. And this is why it's so important for you and I to have this. This is where the power comes from. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts us, it guides us, and it empowers us. The Holy Spirit convicts us, it guides us, and it empowers us. You see, this third part of the Trinity, this, this person of the Holy Spirit, part of what it does is it knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. In John 16, 8, it says the Spirit convicts us of sin. It's the Spirit's job to point out within us brokenness. And when it points out brokenness, we have the opportunity then to respond in repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit's job. It convicts us. Now, that's not comfortable. Oftentimes, that's not fun. But that's where power comes from. It comes from a holy life. When we allow the Spirit to convict us, then we repent of that. Nobody can stop us. That's power. Secondly, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 tells us the Spirit guides us into a holy life. It shows us how we should live. We cannot rely on our own understanding, our own wisdom. We are not smart enough. We don't know enough. So instead, we rely on the Spirit to guide us. There have been many situations I find myself in that I'm thinking, I have no idea what to do here. Spirit, would you guide me? Would you lead me? I want to see where you move, and I will follow. Third, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 3.16 that the Spirit empowers us from within. The Spirit empowers us from within. This means that 
you can say yes to the things that you should say yes to. This also means that you can say no to the things that you should say no to. You are empowered by the Spirit to do so. The Spirit is dunamis. It is power to be a part of the movement of God. So here's what I'm sure of today. If Mount Horeb is going to be a place that is on the move in step with God, if it's gonna be more than a social gathering, there has to be embers that are fanned into flame. There has to be a catalyst, a power, and I believe that power to be movers and shakers in the kingdom of God is the spirit of God. And we cannot rely upon our own strength to operate. It is not sufficient. It will not take you where God wants you to go. Unless we have the spirit with us, we are insensitive to the sin in our life. We don't feel it and we don't care. We don't know how to make decisions. The best we can do is what is financially, you know, conveniently and socially the best. That's not the best way to live. And lastly, we cannot rely on our own wisdom, knowledge, self-control, and will. We have to have the power and presence of God in our lives. It is the spark for a movement. So chapter two. After chapter one, the discussion that we just had these apostles do that very thing. They wait on the Spirit. They take Jesus at his word and believe that there's a gift that's coming that's gonna provide for them all they need to be a part of the movement of God. And then in Acts chapter two, verse one, it happens. Here's what it says in chapter one, verse one through 14. Chapter two, verse one through 14. One through four. <laughs> that was tough. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house that they were sitting in. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they're in this location, in this room together, waiting for the Spirit of God, when suddenly, during the second most uh, important festival in Jewish um, kind of tradition, Pentecost, all of a sudden there's this blowing wind that fills the entire room. And after that blowing wind, there's these pieces of flames that begin to land on the apostles within the room. Let's be honest, it's an odd scene. I've never seen anything like this in particular, but it's very, very, very significant. You see, during Pentecost, this would have been a time where Jews from all over the world would have come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. So dating all the way back to the Old Testament, like the times of exile, where Jews were scattered all across the region, far and wide, these Jews would have come from different countries and different cultures and backgrounds back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so what's happening here, as this great wind comes, and all of a sudden there's these pieces of fire that land on these individuals, and then the Bible says they begin to speak in these different languages. If you're a first century Jewish person, you would have automatically gone back to two major historical things that happened in their past that would have made sense to what's happening here in Acts chapter two. For us, too often it's lost. But if you were then you would have thought already, this is about temples and this is about towers. Temples and towers. You see, as a first century Jewish person, you would have thought about the filling that would have taken place not just in this room, but actually in the Old Testament, something called the temple. See, throughout the Old Testament, the temple was the place that God's presence dwelt. It was the place where his presence and his power was put on display. The temple is where the mortal encountered the divine. It was an incredibly important part of Jewish culture. Now, there are many verses that speak to this, but one of them in particular, I think it says it very clear in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11. There's something that's written in the Old Testament that these individuals would have known. Here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11. It says, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. 
for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All throughout the Old Testament, there are these references to the temple being filled by the very presence of God, the glory of God, the fire of God. And so again, when you're hearing what's happening here in Acts chapter two, if you're there present then, you're thinking to yourself, this great wind that has come and filled this room, it sounds like the filling that took place in the temple. And the candles that have been lit in the temple is a sign of God's presence. These, these fiery pieces that are now landing on the individuals here in this room, this makes me think of the temple. And the reason this is so important is because God is doing something new. He's on the move still. Jesus finishes what he starts. And all of a sudden now, God is not relegated and limited to the temple only where he fills the temple, his presence is experienced and mortals encounter the divine. But now these people, they have become the living presence, living temples in the world. They're being filled by the Holy Spirit, the room filled around them, the flames on each one of them. It is representing the fact that God has now taken up um, residence inside of those who love him and who follow him. This changes everything. This means that God's presence is not limited to one place. This means that God's presence could be anywhere. And instead of us asking questions like, hey, where's God in the middle of that? Where's God in the middle of, of Maui? Where's God in the middle of these places around the world? The better question is this, where are we? Like if God lives and dwells inside of you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if that is true of you, his presence is inside of you with power, the better question is, where are you? Is there brokenness in, brokenness in our community? Yes. Why doesn't God do something about it? Why don't we do something about it? I've been to Liberia twice in the past year and a half, and I've seen such brokenness and need. And I want to be able to answer that question, where's God in Liberia, by saying, listen, I will, I will go and be a presence, God's presence, a temple in the world, of his presence and power in the world. Because I want to be on the move for him. Do you realize that the Spirit of God, if you are a follower of Christ, lives and dwells inside of you? That divine spark, that dunamis, that power that can change everything is in you. Here's the bigger question. Are you living like it? Like in your marriage, do you live as if the Spirit of God lives inside of you and inside of your spouse? The way you speak and spend time with your kids, you do it in such a way where the spirit lives inside of you and you recognize it. When you serve within the church, when you see need around you, in your workplace, in your recreation, do you live as if the spirit of God is taking up residence with inside of you? Because if so, it makes us sensitive to sin. And it guides us each day. And it empowers us for the work that God has called us to. It's about temples, but it's also about towers. You see, after this great wind and these flames that land on each individual, the spirit and presence of God that is there, what happens next is the apostles then begin to speak in this language that wasn't their own. Now, I wanna be very clear. As we go through the book of Acts, one of our greatest temptations in the church is to try to take what is said within the Bible and just make it prescriptive for today. You see, what was happening in Acts was very specific to that time, and the spirit was specific to that time. And so the reason these apostles are now speaking in these languages, these tongues that aren't their own, is because, remember, who all was there in Jerusalem? Jews from everywhere, all countries, all backgrounds and cultural backgrounds, and they've all come there to Jerusalem. So what's happening is they're hearing this truth about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection in their own language so they could believe and trust it as well. So it's about temples, but it's also about towers. If you're an ancient 
Um, and if you are a first century uh, Jewish person, when you hear this story, your mind instantly goes all the way back to a story in Genesis. You see, in Genesis chapter 11, you have sin that has been running rampant since chapter three. And it's caused every person to turn inward and away from God. And you have this story then in chapter 11 where these people begin this big building project. You might know it as the Tower of Babel. And they build this tower to the heavens. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse three and four. They said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for who? Ourselves. Now what happens after this story is that God scatters them and confuses their language. That's why it's called the Tower of Babel. And they go all over the place from that area. It's division. It's a breaking apart because of the sinful nature. What's happening in Acts chapter two is a reunification of all of that. As the Jews have come back to Jerusalem and they're now hearing the language that they know and understand, they're hearing now about this incredible work of Jesus. It's available to them. And God is bringing his people back once again. See, this is what the spirit does in power. For a movement, you have to have embers. You have to have this power that can do these incredible things that we cannot do on our own. But also, you can't just have embers. A movement also needs members. You like what I did there? Embers and members. You also have to have a group of people who buy into what's happening, who believe and trust that Jesus is who he says he is and join the movement to keep it going. This is what happens in Acts chapter two. All of this truth is spoken to all those who have come to Jerusalem. And at, at Acts chapter two then, the very end of chapter two, here's what happens. Peter gives this really great sermon. At the very end of his sermon, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name, uh, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call with many other words, he, wanted, he warned them and he pled with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. I mean, can you imagine being an apostle at this point in time? Peter gives this great speech and sermon and everybody's like, yes, I want in. I want in on what Jesus is doing in the world. I want in on the movement of God. I wanna be a part of what God is doing here. You see, when you have power in the spirit of God, you have members who wanna be a part of what's happening there. I want that power in my own life. So Peter says, repent and believe. Be baptized. Receive this gift that is available to every single one of us. It's embers. It's members. When I was in high school, I think my junior year of high school, my best friend and I decided that at the beginning of the season, we were gonna pray before every game in the middle of the field. And at the very end of the game, we're gonna pray at the very end of every game in the middle of the field as well. We were like really committed to it. There weren't many Christians on our team. So we felt like this was like one little thing that we could do. We'll pray at the beginning, we'll pray at the end. And so sure enough, the first game, Zach and I, we prayed before the game and then we prayed after the game in the middle of the field and we had done it the first day. Nobody else joined us. And for a couple of games, we did this, just us. We would pray before and pray afterwards. The third game, we didn't because we had to fight during the game. And so we didn't pray afterwards. It just didn't feel like it was like the right vibe. So we didn't pray. But the next week, we were back at it before and afterwards. But the most incredible thing happened. Halfway through the season, all of a sudden, there was guys on our team that were like, hey, can we pray with you? 
like, well, sure. So we pray before the game, and middle of the field afterwards, we pray with anybody that wanted to come pray with us. And slowly but surely, there's a couple more that would come and a couple more that would come. In the very end game of that whole season, we lost in like this regional game. It was kind of a big deal. I remember being really upset about it. We were like, listen, we've done this the whole year. Like we better pray at the end too, even though this is a big bummer. So we went to the middle of the field and all of a sudden, both teams, our entire team and the entire team that we just played came to the middle of the field and surrounded around us. And our coach looked at us and said, hey, do you guys wanna pray? And I remember it, even as a high school kid thinking to myself, we did not set out for this. Like this was not the goal at the beginning. Like, listen, if we pray every game, then eventually everybody will join us for this. It'd be so great. That was not the goal. The goal was to just try to be faithful. Like, we felt like that was something the Spirit would want us to do, and so we want to be faithful to that. But all of a sudden, there were others who said, I want to be a part of that too. That's something that I want. See, I would argue that for all of us in this room who love and follow Jesus, if we begin to believe and trust the Spirit of God lives and dwells inside of us, then our lives will be so exemplary of what it looks like to love God and live it out that others might say, I want to be a part of that too. I'll just tell you un unapologetically, I would love to see every Sunday, there's not a, a seat that is open in this room. I want to be very clear, just in case you're like, Trevor just wants to grow a bigger church. No, I don't. I don't. I, I want to see this community transformed and this world transformed. And the only way it happens is that this movement continues on. What Jesus began, he's going to finish. And I wanna invite you to be a part of it. I would love to see every Sunday, this place is slammed full so that there'd be people who would trust that God could do incredible things through them here into the very ends of the earth. That's what this movement is about. That's what God is up to. And so this morning, it's not flashy, it's not cute, but I wanna invite you into the movement. And there's, to be honest, there's no like card you get. There's no pool that you can swim at or, you know, no golf course or, you know, nice food. There's nothing like that. There's no benefit like that. But I can tell you that the sacrifice that you will give to be a part of what God is doing is all worth it. It's worth it. Because it shapes and molds us into the kind of people that God wants for us to be and the kind of world that he wants for all of us. So this morning, I want us to pray and I'm just going to invite the Spirit just to come and fill this place. And I would invite you in your seat, if you wanna come up front, if you wanna go to someone else in the room and pray together, I would invite you just to take your hands and open them just like this, to receive the gift of the Spirit that is available to you today. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us? We need you, Lord. We know that you have called us into things that we cannot do on our own. As simple as being an, an example and a witness in our workplace, as difficult that, as living out a marriage the way you want us to and as hard as it is sometimes, God, to go to the ends of the earth to serve those who are the poorest of the poor. God, none of, it, none of it is easy, so we need your power. I pray, Father, that any person in this room right now, God, that has an open heart and mind to you, who's inviting your spirit to indwell in them, I pray, God, that you would come. As we wait on you, God, give us eyes to see where you're at work, that we might harness your power to be a part of all that you wanna do in the world. So just for a moment, I would invite you just to speak to God. Just feel his presence here with us this morning.
Spirit, would you convict us of our sin? Show us where we need to repent and believe in you. Spirit, would you guide us each day of our life that we would not lean on our own understanding, but we would lean on you. And Spirit, would you empower us to do amazing things, not to make a name for ourselves, but to make a name for you, Jesus. Humbly, God, we invite you to fill us. Would you fill this room now, God, with your glory, with your power, mercy and love. We need you, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Together, everyone said.